Have we met before? No. Oh, well, hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Good. We talked over email. I, I emailed you in the past about the ghost tours. Yes. That's why it was familiar. Yes. Okay, good. It looks like I'm recording this. So how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I'm really good. Good. Surprisingly good. I can't believe it, actually. Really? <laughs> yeah. You? Uh, yeah, I'm doing fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing everything, you know. I know. Is that totally. your, your pet in the background? Uh, yeah, that's my dog. Um, he might start barking. I've, I've kind of I've tried to draw all the shades in here so he doesn't see the birds outside. He goes crazy. There's birds. Really? Yeah. So there's a chance I might be grabbing him if he starts to guard the house. But well, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. I know. Well, thank you so much for doing this little interview with me. I'm very excited. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. Um. So I loved your book. It's called Market Ghost Stories, right? Yeah. And how long ago did you publish that? Um, I published it in 2009, the okay. first edition. Oh, okay. So I didn't discover it for a while. Well, it, it was all self-published, Laura. So like I would print when I had money, I would print what I could um, and put it out. And uh, there he goes. Hear him? Oh, my God. Would you excuse me just for one second? Go ahead. I'll be right back. Okay. Oh, geez, Pierre, don't do this to me. I'd be okay with that, but I'm not gonna be okay. Stop. All right, I just closed some more windows. Means I'm gonna be a little bit dark, but okay. But. Maybe that'll make him feel better. Ha! Ah, he's such a jerk. I tell you, he's a jerk, jerk, jerk. Okay. So go ahead. So, um, I mean, I feel like I've seen the book in multiple shops around the market, right? So I mean. Yeah. Has it done what you wanted it to do? And what did you want it to do? Well, um, you know, I was telling ghost stories for 16 years. That's how long I did the tour. Um, and I was an archivist before. I worked um, with PBS. And uh, I ghost stories always fascinate me because, you know, whether or not they're believable or true, it doesn't matter. Um, when there's events that like happen over and over again or different people tell you a story about a location. Like I am so curious about what that location was and if there's anything historically or an event that happened that could lead to a residual or a haunting. Um, and you know, every time I looked, there was always something. That's what I find so amazing about people's uh, ability of perception, uh, you know, more than just the ghost story, just that, that everyone seems to have different tools for perceiving both our rational world and what might be considered irrational. And, um, you know, it's just amazing to me that events, um, use of space, uh, they, they have energy and that people can pick up on it, you know? Yeah. So there's spaces that kind of attract a lot of people will have the same experiences is that what you're saying oh yeah in the market yeah. definitely one of those 
the market is definitely, I think all markets in the entire world are like that. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a place of commerce and I consider money energy. So there's exchanges of energy that's going on. Um, usually markets represent multi multi-cultures, uh, languages, uh, customs. Um, so it's a place of exchanging information and ideas too. And also it's a place of work. And I, I firmly believe that part of, um, you know, what resides beyond consciousness, it has a lot to do with what we do daily. So repetitive behavior when we're alive, I think relates to what can happen after death, honestly. Um, that's why I think ritual is so important. And uh, work is the biggest ritual we have. So that that's my explanation. Okay, so the market definitely is a place for that. Yeah. Um, you said every time you look, there's always something. Yeah. What What are you looking for? The ghosts? Are you finding them? Um, well, that part, that's one piece. So like if you're a paranormal researcher, have you ever done that? Like, I mean, I've never done anything like that. Not with like a tool or anything. Like I always want a ghost to come. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, well, th there's that, that aspect, which, you know, is... Uh, ghost hunting, which I never, I mean, I just didn't need to do it because I firmly believe. So there's, I don't need proof, um, but I have done it a lot. And uh, it's like being a four-year-old kid again. It's just like, okay. you, you, you know, you're so excited by what you find. So that's one element, but no, I'm looking at like uses of space. So I look at like insurance maps, fire maps, um, leases, uh, just kind of historical context for what a place was, how it was built. Sometimes a ghost resides you know, on a plane that we think is, you know, in the middle of thin air, but it, there actually was like a, a floor there or there was a structure there, um, that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Wow. That's really cool. It's so fun. You should do it. I totally, I would totally get into that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot, like I'm trying to like process. Okay, so um, do you, th have you seen a ghost? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So why do you think they're still there? Oh gosh, there's so many levels to that. <laughs> um, and not all, everything that I've seen is actually uh, dead. It's not like, um, Ghost to me can also, it's an energetic form. That's how I think of a ghost. And that includes our ability to manifest energy. So um, I believe even we as living people can create forms that are seen by others. Um, and I also believe that time is uh, much more fluid than we think of and the universe. Um, I do, I am someone that believes in the possibility of parallel universes. And um, I also believe that there's planes of existence that are you know, happening right now as I'm sitting here. And I think sometimes a ghost is a glimpse into that. Um, where it is a true haunting, where uh, something is attached to a person or a place, that's quite different to me. That is um, kind of like a consciousness that hasn't returned. And that is something that I, I believe is a, a bit in peril and needs to be helped. Um, and I know that happens. I, I, I have seen it. I have seen it in my own family. Um, and that is where like doing just a fun ghost tour can take another turn where you're actually responsible to uh, try to get these things to move on. Okay, wow. Yeah, so there's kind of like a moral responsibility there. 
I always felt that, yeah. When I was down there and I was telling stories, I always thought, you know, I could actually, I know it sounds a little weird, but I could feel when there was involvement and where things were maybe moving or transitioning and, um, or when they just were like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay here. And that's it. Wow. Okay. Well, I would guess, I mean, we're talking about stories about ghosts, but it's really, the book is a history book, right? Yeah. More than a ghost book. It's a history book. Yeah. And so I feel like we talked about how the market is an energy center, but do you think it's kind of like a center where a lot of trauma happened and maybe that's why people are stuck? Yeah, for sure. Uh, all of downtown Seattle is, it's, um, I mean, we are unique here in, uh, there's so many aspects of it and you probably know some of these between the bodies of water we have here, the volcanoes, the quartz and crystal that is uh, way below us, you know, thousands of feet below us. Um, and, you know, we in Seattle did the largest engineering project that's ever been done, bigger than the Panama, digging of the Panama Canal. And that was the regrade in the city from um, 1890 to the 1930s, where they pretty much changed the entire topography of the region. And I, you know, there were cemeteries moved, buildings moved, dirt moved, the, you know, entire city was completely transformed. And that's also at a time of great, um, you know, tumultuous uh, economic change, growth in the city, uh, decimation of native peoples. Um, You know, there's a there's a lot of things that go into that time period, which is the formation of the city. So we start with that energy. We start with all that activity and we have today and we, it still is here. Okay. So you have some places that have a lot of energy. Um, yes. Stuck, but then what happens when that physical space is moved around? Like you just described. Yeah. Uh, here we go into like theory, right? Like, um, Sometimes on an anniversary, you'll continue, you'll have a re- repeated activity that's related to a specific period of time, maybe a season, maybe a day. Um, uh, you have structures that are changed and release energy, um, specifically wood, uh, like old wooden structures, fires um, that literally release energy, but also release stored energy that is on a different plane. Well, I remember at the beginning of the book, it sounded like you had kind of a long personal history with the market. Yeah. You tell me a little bit about how you came to be part of it. Sure. Um, I was born in Spain uh, to two American parents who left in um, 19, late 1979. So I was seven and we moved to Seattle because of the Pike Lakes market. Uh, both of my parents are painters. My father's passed on now, but um, they uh, wanted to remain independent artists. And the Pipe Place Market was the place to do that, where you could really take that risk. And they were successful. So uh, we hunkered down and I've lived here most of my life and worked in the market for most of my life. Um, you know, I, I still am there almost daily. And uh, it's a community that's so special. You know, it's, yeah. it, it really is. It's more than a tourist location or even a place to buy groceries. It's this residence there and the people really make that place so, so special. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like you can, you can feel it. You can yeah. feel it, I think, 
just so many people love it and are putting so much into it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, okay. So your parents were painters and yes, had a ghost tour. Yeah. And there was like a coffee place, right? Yeah. Um, in the 1980s, my father was crowned the mayor of Pike Place Market. And he and this kind of ragtag group of market people uh, started a Halloween tradition of telling ghost stories. It goes all the way back to 1986. And then by 2003, I was doing it with him. And I asked him for permission to build it into a business. So it became a year round business with 11 employees. Like it was Oh, it was so perfect because it was right at the same time that all those ghost shows were starting, you know, like ghost adventures. And so it was like such a great business to have. It was so fun. Um, but I, my father passed in 2016 and I lost all interest in ghosts or anything related to the subject. I mean, completely, even the market. I didn't even want to be down there. And I, I had opened the shop in 2012. Um, and I think partly my father's death, that was one piece that led to me um, selling the shop and not being there daily. I, I experienced heartbreak like I hadn't, and grief, I just hadn't experienced it that way. And um, speaking of ghosts, my father was around and is still around. And uh, especially the first six months after his death, I was really concerned that he was way too earthbound and, um, wasn't taking to his own transition. And I know that, I don't know how that sounds, but that's exactly what I felt. I could feel him. And it's only this year that I actually felt him transition. So um, I've been able to like revisit the book and kind of get back into my relationship with something he taught me. Wow, okay, so more peaceful now. Yes, yeah, yeah. Have you ever read, um, have you ever read the Tibetan Book of the Dead? I've heard of it though. It's so fascinating because it's it basically states that um, when someone dies, those that are left that are grieving, we are going through the same stages that they are going through after death. So every stage of grief that we go through, their soul is also going through. So it's it's an amazing way to connect after the death of someone. And that's my brother and I both went. And um, we read that book together and kind of went through the stages, thinking of him also going through those stages. And it worked? Well, he stuck around. That was the jerk. We're trying to get over it and he's sticking around. He was there for you or? No, he was just stubborn. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a really nice way to think about it. I've uh, lost three people this year. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's it's crazy. 2020, man. Um, all in really sad ways, all like young people. Yeah. So I'm also like trying to like, not that I've never thought about death before, but I have to think about it again. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't usually have time to think about it, right? Like, it's, it's a weird thing to like stop and like check in with that sadness and be like, they're still, still dead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So do you ever feel anything in your shoulders? I mean, like, like tension. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of them being around you. I think that's part of the grief process. I really do. I think you feel it here. It's like a weight. 
since they have noticed it more lately. It just, um, it's frustrating when, I don't know, did you feel like your dad had, like, lived the life he wanted to and was ready, or? No. Okay. That's, Absolutely not. That's, that's what's hard, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you lose friends when they're young. I lost my two best friends before they were 40, and, uh. I've never had friends like that since. It's devastating. It is, yeah. We tell their stories. Yeah. We record it. I feel like that's, you probably did a lot to honor those souls when you wrote the book. Um, I hope so. I definitely think so, because I, I really appreciated getting to know about them. Um, some, some nicer ones, some not so nice ones. Um, but I felt like it was so important, you know. So um, in the book, you talk about like child labor, you know, like that little marble boy, right? And there's things like brothels and abuse and serial killers. Um, Native Americans, just like so many sad, sad stories. Was there one in particular that was more personal or like favorite? Um, I always come back to uh, Princess Angeline, who's Chief Seattle's daughter. Um, one, I, you know, identify with her as a woman, not that I can speak to Native American ancestry, that's not in my lineage, but she was a um, kind of an icon for the city for so long. And when she, she had lived, she lived right below Pike Place Market um, on a hillside in a little shack. and. They passed laws that no Native American person could enter the city of Seattle without being accompanied by a Caucasian male. And that included uh, our namesake, Chief Seattle, who um, had to be accompanied by a white man to walk the streets. And she defied that law and stayed in her house and lived and died there. Um, and, you know, there's, I don't know, it, it's so, <laughs> she's such an amazing figure because she, you know, she helps the settlers that are coming in and the people that are going to decimate her culture, uh, you know, um, she helps, she aids them in some ways and protects them. But she also remains like this connection to the ancestral people of this land by her image and the icon status of her face even um, as a constant reminder of the people that were here. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've lost that in a lot of ways. We, we aren't aware of how uh, incredible uh, the indigenous and first nations people were along Puget Sound and are today as well. Um, and so for me, she's like a tie right back to that past. And, I, and her story is fascinating because she's a ghost that people see quite often. Um, what? Uh, people see her a lot around the market. Yeah, yes. Um, she is seen in the back part of the market going down toward Western Avenue. And she's almost hovering. Um, and uh, she appears uh, full body which is unusual. Um, she is short with a blanket usually around her. Uh, sometimes there's beads, people describe white beads on her blanket. Um, 
she has these piercing blue eyes and she has red hair. And that's the other thing that's really interesting about her story is that her ancestry, if you take it back, it's the same as the people that are arriving here because her, um, the community of people that she comes from, specifically the Lumi tribe in the San Juans, has the red hair and blue eyes that are ancestral to parts of Russia. You know, so you have this uh, lineage that goes way back. Um, but if, you know, we're all related if you go way, way, way back. And same with the two groups of people that were here on Puget Sound in the 1850s. So yeah, so her eyes are fascinating. Like people are really freaked out to see these blue eyes. And the story is that if you meet eyes with her, you know, you are um, not long for this earth. But some people also believe that, you know, her name is Angeline Angel that was given to her, that she's actually a, a good omen, that she's uh, blessing your life as well. But the curse is there too. it goes one way yes have, have you seen her no no i've never seen her my, my father says he's seen her and i know a gentleman at golden age collectibles in the lower levels that has seen her clear as day really uh, i should just talk to him i know that story go oh, his name is steve he'll tell you all about it okay he was inside his shop in the in the back closet wow mm-hmm I don't know, but he's still around, so. He's not dead, okay. <laughs> yeah, and you said she also appears full body. That's unusual to see. Yeah. Body. Why is that, do you know? Um, gosh, that's, I don't know. I, it's, I'd be guessing. Um, but a lot of people just kind of get imprints of maybe a pair of shoes or a hat or a face or shoulders um some people think uh they see a ghost and it's disembodied and it's not it's just a, a glimpse of a piece of them um maybe just like video it's like just a little buzz and you just see a little piece of it uh, but seeing a full body apparition from everything i've known is very unusual wow yeah i wonder if that's a testament to her and maybe she was very embodied yeah I, yeah, exactly. I like your thinking. Yeah. Okay. So if she's still appearing to people, is that a sign that she has not moved on? Yeah, I believe she hasn't. I believe she's still here. She's very connected to the earth, very connected to the land, just like she was in life, refusing to leave her space. Okay. She's still there. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. That you're Maybe. Attached. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty complicated story. <laughs> you know, as important and as she was to so many people, you know, that she's still having that journey after she dies. Um, I feel like Seattle in general is the same way. Like there's so much to love about it, but it's just like a really messy history. Yeah. Um, you've agree. lived here your whole life, right? Almost. Since I was seven. Yeah. You're little. So yeah. how do you feel about Seattle? Do you get upset about the bad history or? There's some of it that's quite upsetting, um, but I, I'm really encouraged this year. I sat down and, and rewrote the book, and a lot of that was um, because of the Black Lives Matter movement in Seattle, um, because I, I went to um, some of the protests, and I brought food up to Chaz and brought coffee up there, and 
what I saw, you know, despite the media accounts and some of the negativity around it, which there was, um, I saw people acknowledging the indigenous history here. Uh, they would, even the mayor uh, would acknowledge the Salish lands before she would speak. And I've seen that happen more and more this year, um, where even our governor will acknowledge the Salish people and um, the indigenous people of this region in their public announcements. Um, and, you know, I um, feel optimistic when I see that kind of responsibility and recognition happening in our public leaders. And I really credit the uh, Black Lives Matter movement here in the city as putting that in the forefront. And um, so I like seeing that. Yeah, it is. It's cool. Yeah. What's that quote? The um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I like that. So I guess I think that's a Martin Luther King. So it's been a long time coming, but progress, right? Yeah, and the, the last piece with that is the recognition of the Point Elliot Treaty, which needs to happen, and that's the treaty that was signed with the Duwamish, ensuring them rights. Um, on their ancestral land. And that treaty has never been, well, it was briefly ratified, briefly under Clinton. And then it was taken away immediately after he left office. So the Duwamish keep fighting for that. I'm, I'm hopeful that that will get recognized wow. at some point. Great. Okay. So there's a lot more to work for. Yeah. There's still, I mean, all of these things are still in the, our politics now. We don't, we really don't really hear about them, but they're in our politics. So it's our history, but it's actually still very much. It's, yeah, totally, completely. Okay, so you said you you just rewrote the book. Yes. Update it because yes. I have an older edition. I I wish I had it here. It's at my parents' house. That's okay. That's all right. Yeah, I rewrote it. You'd like it. I put in one story that is really crazy. Do you want to hear it? Yes. <laughs> this is such a weird one, but it's recent. It's very recent. Um. So I'll just tell you the story. Okay. So in Pike Place Markets, there is on the north end, a um, all the tables where the farmers and the craftspeople set up daily. And every day they do a roll call. So they show up and there's a market master that calls out their name and they assign a table for them. So you can imagine all these craftspeople with their jewelry and their pottery and everything, they have to set up every single day and take down every day. Um, which is a lot of work and it's a lot of stuff. So across from the North Arcade, underneath the Starbucks, there are a set of lockers and there's hundreds of them. Um, that's where everybody keeps their stuff. And for 26 years, I believe in total, there was one man who had a ring of keys, all these keys. And he would go every morning and pull out people's carts and bring them to their tables after they were assigned. And at night as a craftsperson, all you did was pack up your cart and the same man would come by and take your cart and roll it and put it down in the lockers. He did this every single night. His name was Harvey. And Harvey um, always had one of those kind of old newspaper hats, the news, newsboy hats, you know, with the little yeah. lid right here kind of hung down and he, his shoulders were high. He carried a lot on his shoulders and he would be pushing the carts, right? And he was, he would get mad at you if you were in the way. Uh, 
kind of under his breath, kind of like talking like this, you know. And I always assumed like he smoked or something, but he didn't. Um, he loved chocolate. He ate a lot of chocolate, I guess. Harvey was a fixture. And in this community, you can become a fixture without people knowing your backstory. You don't, nobody needs to know your backstory. I don't need to know your politics. I don't need to know your family history. You're here every day. I accept you. That's the kind of place the market is. So that was him, Harvey. So um, one night Harvey's there and he is pushing the carts and he's real late. It's like 930 at night um, and he's attacked. I mean, brutally attacked. He's assaulted. Uh, he is beaten uh, very close to death. Um, he's in a lane in a parking space along Pike Place and um, two crafters that were still in the market found him and uh, took him to the hospital, put the cart away for him, finished his work. And uh, he was more concerned about the carts than he was his own life that night. So he's in Harborview. Um, he recovers physically, but mentally really doesn't, emotionally doesn't you know, he's a wreck. Um, people find housing for him in the market. He ends up living there the next year. Um, but eventually he's back in Harborview. His body starts to fail and um, he's dying. So the morning of his death, uh, there's a long time craftsperson that had used him for 20 plus years and she's hanging her scarves for sale at her table and she feels something behind her, she turns around and Harvey is standing right in front of her. And she says to him, what are you doing, Harvey? You're supposed to be in the hospital. And at that moment, he disappears right in front of her. Now, for some reason, she looks at her watch and it's 11 a.m. That is the exact moment he was pronounced dead that moment. Spooky. That gets weirder though. Laura, he had been living in one of the lockers down below the Starbucks for decades. And when they unlock that locker, they find his bed and little stacks of books. And they find these black garbage bags that are filled. Guess what they're filled with? Chocolate? <laughs> I wish. Money. Like A hundred $37,000 in dollars and $5 bills that people had paid them all these years. Just all crimpled up in these big black garbage sacks. And that money ended up going to um, some of his medical bills they paid off with, with higher review. And they also were able to find a brother that uh, lived in West Seattle. So they gave some of the money to him. But Harvey is still in the market. And he's still there. And what people describe as not seeing him, they describe feeling him. Like they literally just like kind of walk into a space and it's a Harvey space. Like you can just feel him. You know how some people have like energy, like when they walk in a room, yeah, you know that they're, that, that's what Harvey is like. You knew where he was, you yeah. could feel him. And so people still do. Wow. So is that like a, a, like a love story to the market? Was he just really dedicated? Just super dedicated, super, super dedicated. That's like, it's sweet, right? I mean, it's sad, it's very, very sad. Yeah, it, it makes me cry. I mean, when I was doing the ghost tour and I started to tell the story, it, it, 
I didn't for a couple years after his death. And when I started, it was a, it was a little controversial in the community because um, he was such a loved character. You know, um, it was close, real close for people. So even though the circumstances were rough and maybe he came off as kind of rough around the edges, there's a lot of devotion to the, the people yeah. and the market itself. Yep, yeah. That kind of come up a lot where people like find their community through the market and even if they've had a rough life, it's like that's where they can be around people and Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I kinda of had that sense. There was a story about a woman too. Yeah. I don't really remember. I think she she had like a lot of pins that she'd wear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was another she was there. Um yeah, that I grew up knowing her. I have her hat. I can go get it. You want me to just oh, get it? Yeah, I'd love to see it. Hold on. Okay. Everybody, hold on, I'm gonna go get this hat. Oh, man. Oh. Wow. That's okay. I can see the pins. And yeah. May West, that was her name. That's what everybody called her. Oh my gosh. Did she these are these are pretty tame on the hat. Oh really? I can't read. Yeah. Yeah. L yes, I am a movie star. Um, I don't know, there's some more on the back. But she made these hats with the Rainier being then she would wear these on her side. Oh my god, I can totally sense her. Really? She used to wear these. Yeah. Is it like knitted? Yeah, it's all crocheted. Wow. So this was May West's hat. Oh, it's so weird to put it on really yeah okay is she still around no she's not around she's passed on completely uh, oh here's spiritual. i love i love men yeah um no she's not around her energy is not there right now well, that's fair, yeah i think so okay. so all right so if you you rewrote the book and obviously it has like a million stories was there one thing that if you could make something better or make something change with the book? Yeah. Um, yeah, there is. Thanks. Um, uh, so there's, you know who the ghost adventures are? Zach Bagans. Do you know that guy? Okay. So he came here 2010 and we did a, a show together. We also did like a three day investigation in the market um but he i like him but he's a bit of a sensationalist and he uh went on about the butterworth mortuary which is in pike place and how the mortician was this bad guy and you know that part really upset me like it upsets me that people look back on historical events and think there has to be a villain that upsets me like and I always had a hard time writing about that part in the book um, because that building has a lot of hauntings and, and some negative, very negative feelings there. But uh, we, I don't know, we just look for villains and sometimes it's just life. Like they had a, we had a pandemic in 1918 and 1919, you know, 13% of the population of the city died. Like that was a very difficult, horrible event. And that mortuary was a very important part okay. of that story. 
um, we had a serial killer, Linda Hazard, who was murdering people and stealing their belongings and their property and their clothing and their teeth. And she used that mortuary for her patients. So instead of looking at like the mortician was involved, because that's kind of a great story, but it's not, it's not true. So that, that part is one that I've always wanted to spend more time on and figure out how to write. Okay, maybe like redeem. Yeah. yeah, or I mean, what I did was instead of trying to redeem, I just didn't go that way. I just, you know, focused more on the building itself and the architecture in the building rather and i don't spend a lot of time in the book writing about that you could write a whole book about just that building um and the reason i didn't is because it is easy to assign this villainous plot and i didn't i didn't want to go there okay do you think that uh the person was innocent or is it just like it's way too complex to simplify it right too complex way too complex it's it's you know economics politics industry well that i mean that's generous of you because I, I agree that people really do find villains in the past it's like there's no good people in history right um which i'm sure future generations will look back on us and think we're disgusting you know yeah that's a high possibility yeah so it's probably not productive to just make it black and white yeah yeah well I think that would be a perfect legacy for the book for people to have a more like complicated, like full real understanding of the people who lived and died and made really bad choices and but also some really good ones. Yeah. I mean the market is still a really beautiful place, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about what you do now. Is it still connected at all to what you did before? Um, I roast coffee and uh, so no, <laughs> it's totally different. Uh, I roast coffee. I'm, I'm in the middle of opening a shop that's coffee, tea, and warm spice, like spices you can put in your coffee. Um, I ended up getting into the coffee world kind of by accident and I love it. I feel like I'm a witch, oh. you know. <laughs> like potions. roasting my coffee and then brewing my coffee. Yeah, making potions, making people happy. Um, there's a science behind that. I love to cook, so I love that craft. And um, it's very, uh, it's something I can do during the pandemic too. So I've been able to work this entire time. Um, and now I'm starting to blend teas, which is even more witchy. And uh, I still do a lot of ghost stuff. Like I really, I, uh, I, I gave up drinking completely. Like I used to kind of, that's my dad's death. I drank a little too much and then I gave it up like totally. And I tell you like some of my intuition and mediumship abilities, those are all coming back that I used to have when I was younger. Um, I feel like my mind is less clouded and I can trust myself a lot more. And, and that's not only just with giving up drinking, that's also giving up some lifestyle uh, choices as well, including how I eat and how I treat myself and how I think of myself, yeah. you know. Um, so this pandemic has been really hard and I have lost two people as well during this time to COVID. Um, um, but I've tried to think of it as a time of renewal and, yeah. uh, you know, 
there's that element bits of that the little renaissance kind of aspect where when everything's shut down then there's other things that can thrive a little bit that were maybe not didn't have a chance before yeah especially yeah did you have you been doing things too and finding well i have the same job that i did before and it's a tech startup uh it's pretty young and i feel like things were very fast and chaotic before covid and then things slowed down very abruptly and it was really sad and scary but then all of a sudden like the little team came together and had this time and energy to kind of revamp everything yeah so i feel like that's been interesting to see and then people obviously the political stuff i feel like if people were so busy busy just trying to keep their jobs they wouldn't have had time to protest the way they did like they just wouldn't have had time you know yeah um so stuff like that i agree that there's like those silver linings yeah it's it is hard to say positive some days um yeah i mean i i hope that things just get better next year you know really i mean hopefully there's a vaccine hopefully they're just less awful yeah i hope so too i just i really uh, worry about our healthcare workers and you know frontline responders and just the uh, enormous stress that they must be under and um i i do get angry i gotta be honest because it is through our i don't know if it's being uninformed or being irresponsible or wanting uh, positive it could, it could come out of something good but it you know we're restraining our resources and our resources are people to fight a pandemic and that that gets me angry honestly yeah definitely it's um it's like they're it's disposable yeah it's that yeah i have a friend who um was like the head of a icu and um she totally quit working and moved back to the town she grew up in and i'm glad she was able to do that but i've been watching her like kind of scared for her um she just yeah. had a baby too and oh, wow. I, I know like she was really overwhelmed and she yeah so i feel like um i'm just kind of keeping my eye on certain people like i'm afraid that that trauma will kind of show up because i think right now everyone's just still white knuckling it mm -hmm. it's like you yeah know how bad it was um i haven't heard her stories yet i don't know how bad it was for her yeah i'm sure you yeah i mean i just feel like that that's those that's the community we need to really protect um especially if this starts to go even worse and which it is it's doing that right now and we need to put all our resources behind those men and women and people that are um you know saving our lives saving our lives just no small thing just just our lives yeah you know wow. oh god for some reason laura i just feel really emotional i keep thinking about you and your loss and what we're going through and i, I didn't start this talk feeling very emotional but i feel very emotional well you're very intuitive and very compassionate so thank you for having feelings with me yeah yeah, I can feel him. Thank you. I, I really admire people like you who are in touch like that. I wish that I was, um, but I feel like I'm, I don't like access that very well, you know? Do you know why? 
No, not really. Not specifically. <laughs> I mean, I like hope that, that I can work on that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever read a book called Esoteric Magic? No, I've never heard of it. It might be something you'd like. Okay. It's a it's a written by a woman and it's um, basically how magic is in our daily lives and we don't even see it. Like um, one of the exercises that she does is every time you open a door, really open a door, like like it's a new experience, it's a new place, and you're in a new place, even if it's the same place. That that's like energetically allowing you to be present and see things in a new way. But she does exercises like that that you know, just opening a can of soup is something magical. And it's, it's just a nice way to look at the world. It also gets you very in touch with your intuition and your feelings. Yeah, well, you describe that and not to like start a therapy session, but my <laughs> reaction is like, it's hard to be present. So maybe I know. it's so true. Yeah. yeah, I can dish it out, but girl, I don't do it every day. <laughs> Well, you do the coffee and tea and that's a ritual, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Present. And you serve it. Yeah. And that's pretty powerful. What's and going on with the metaphysical library? Well, I mean, it's rough. Like we're not open. Yeah. But we do want to start. Well, we're open sometimes on weekends. People should know. And you can come by appointments. And we want to make it so that you can check out books and we can just like mail them to you or you can pick them up. Oh, great. Good. But yeah, we're pretty hunkered down, but it's, this is a really good time to explore all of those topics. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I really enjoyed it. I wasn't involved in the library until right around COVID. And really? Yeah, it's been perfect for me. Awesome. Yeah, it's very, I don't know, books, they just create a sacred space, I feel like. I mean, I want to ask you so many questions about the stories in the book. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about some of those? Yes. Okay. So one that really stuck out to me is I think they were just called like girls and it was like sure. all of the prostitution. Mm -hmm. That really struck me because it's like such a feminist issue. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. I feel like, so there was a lot, there was the, a population that was mostly young men because they were cutting down timber. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, yeah. So we had a ratio of 10 men to every one woman in the city around 1900. And um, those 10 men would have been in the fishing industry, gold mining, uh, lumber, uh, and just work basically, you know, a um, lot of hard labor building a city. And the one woman uh, would have arrived here uh, from anywhere, actually. There were women coming from uh, Russia, um, China, um, East Coast, Vancouver, um, Canada. And uh, work was pretty, wasn't a lot of work available for women. And there weren't a lot of uh, professions either for women. Um, the most common profession was a uh, seamstress, which was literally sewing. Um, that was the most common profession in the US in about you know 1870, let's say as a year. Um, 
and these women would come they uh, would fill in censuses census that said what the profession was and they would mark seamstress so in seattle like if you go on the underground tour they say that all these women were busy sewing men's pants um because they were really prostitutes well not necessarily they really were seamstresses that was a real thing um but there was a lot of um prostitution in the city as there were in any west coast city uh it, oldest profession right um and so we had congregations of women that would work together in in what was known as the lava beds which was in Pioneer Square and um, we had large brothels. We had really horrible brothels, uh, really horrible brothels. And we also had parlor houses, which were very refined. Um, so we had all these different levels of prostitution in the city. Uh, we also had a lot of human trafficking very early on. And we still do today. Um, so yeah, okay. that's a little bit of it. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's pretty intense because there's a lot of energy around that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and is that attached to the market? Is there any buildings that are? Yeah, the market has one building that still has its original sign on it, but it uh, was a brothel in the '40s during World War II. So early on in Seattle, Pioneer Square, which was known as the Lava Beds was where the prostitution was. And then you go into the 20s and 30s and it starts to move up First Avenue. And then by the 40s and into the 70s, First and Pike becomes the epicenter of both adult entertainment and prostitution, both women and men working in prostitution on the streets. And 1942, a woman named Nellie Curtis, naughty Nellie, um, she had amassed a fortune she was a rum runner during Prohibition. She had a whole fleet of boats that brought alcohol to the city. Um, she also had had a brothel in, uh, I think I believe, I can't remember where it was. It was down south of us um, around Aberdeen. And then she came to Seattle, she bought this building. She called it the LaSalle after the Cadillac and she employed women to service men. Um, it was more of an upscale place. Um, it was supposed to be off limits to the military. It wasn't. Uh, the mayor and the police chief both turned the other way and she ran it for 11 years. Um, the women that worked there had business cards and they said LaSalle Hotel, friends made easily. That was it. Okay. So they all had business cards. They would go out, they would attract men. Men would come to the building. There was a entrance on the western avenue that went up the hillside so it was a private entrance if you go there today if you're looking at the public market center sign it's all red light and that red light casts onto the building and the building is the LaSalle hotel which is still bathed in this red light and that's one way that people found it oh wow yeah and naughty nelly as she was known the madam is supposedly still there. The LaSalle Hotel is senior housing today. And one gentleman I know, Buddy, he knew it when it was a brothel and he knows it now as his residence. Wow, okay. And has he seen Nellie? No, I don't know that he has, but people have. People say that she's in the elevator 
in the senior building and all the way down to the floors below as well. Um, and then there's the Pike Pub, which is just down the way from that building. And they have a spirit and alcohol named after her, Naughty Nellie's Ale. And supposedly she also resides in that alleyway by their um, pub. Um, so she's supposedly there. I, I, I don't know for sure on this one. This is not one I've really investigated, but I wouldn't be surprised if she's still around. Yeah, it makes sense, I guess. Very, very strong energetic attachment. Right, yeah, and her place of business, commerce. Yeah, I mean, a lot of work poured into that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating to think of like how sad it is that women only had like two jobs that they could do. They didn't have a lot of choice. But then there were people like Naughty Nelly who were business owners and they were in charge and they were wealthy. Very wealthy, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, in our early past in the city, we had um, Lou Graham, do you know who she is? Mm -hmm. She, um, her house still stands. You can go see the exterior of it. It's at Second um, and Washington down in Pioneer Square. It's beautiful. It was a parlor house. So it was um, a very refined home. So politicians, important people, they would go to her house. And she employed both men and women, men that would cross-dress to pleasure certain men um, and women. And uh, she taxed, she created a taxation system that built our roads, basically. She um, was the largest donor to the city. Uh, the Now that it's been surpassed by Bill Gates, but until Bill Gates, she was the largest donor to the city of Seattle financially. That's pretty incredible. I know. Yeah. Do you feel like the relationships between, they're called madams, right? Like yes. Do you think the relationship between them and the women they employed was like uplifting? like job or was it more, I don't know. It really depends, I think, in which house you were in. Um, you know, we also had places that they called White Chapel and Black Chapel. And those were two really infamous um, whorehouses. I, they called them box houses is actually what they called them. And they were young women. A black house was African-American, White House was Caucasian-American. These were young girls and they were, pretty much trapped in boxes, cages um, to service men. That happened too. So uh, yeah, I think you were really lucky if you could work independently or you could work in a parlor house and not be subjected to that kind of servitude. That's so wild. Yeah. I mean, it was such an uh, important part of our past that in 1910, our mayor, a man named Hiram Gill, actually built the world's largest brothel. Uh, it was a 500 room structure. Okay. <laughs> yep. He, and um, the rooms could be rented to women by the hour. So you paid for the use of the room and the bed, and then you serviced your men. Um, this building was between two rail lines that went into the city. It, uh, the building's gone now, but to give you an idea of where it is, it was south of the two stadiums that we have now. Um, so if you were coming into the city of Seattle and you were traveling by train, this was a stop on the train. Um, the world's largest brothel. Uh, it created so much controversy as you can imagine. And the mayor was recalled. The building was converted to apartments. Um, 
and eventually destroyed. Okay. Wow, that's intense. Isn't that wild? Yeah, it is. Have you oh, wait. Of, huh? Yes. I have a picture of it. Oh, yeah, I want to see. Please. Hold on. <laughs> So oh, the world's largest brothel, my friend. I have the report of the grand jury and a picture of the actual building. Here it is. This is the world's largest brothel, Seattle. Look at that. I know. Okay. I mean, it's whatever. Have you, have you ever been to Butte, Montana? I have. Why did you bring that up? Because they have a brothel museum. Oh, I didn't get to go see that. Dang it. Yeah. Yeah, it still has a lot of original stuff. They have the little tiny rooms in the basement. And then it, the upper floors were the fancy, the parlor area. And then down, there was like, they called them cribs down below. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I, that was what, I'd never even like heard of this whole history until I went to Butte and I was really fascinated. Um, they have, because they have ghost stories, they also had like a, I think the ghost hunter show, one of them there. And the, the saddest thing, I think the thing that really like made me so fascinated was, um, it's actually in a New York Times article. There is a ghost there and I'm trying to remember exactly how it went. It was like they opened up a wall in the building when they were, you know, redoing it. And they found this little tiny like beaded woman's purse that was obviously very old. And inside of it was like a little pet parakeet that was oh. someone's pet, <sighs> you know? And when it died, she'd put it in her purse and put it in the wall. And then, so maybe that's separate from the story. There's also a known suicide of a woman who had an opportunity to escape. A man told her that he was gonna take her away and marry her. And then he just didn't show up and she died in the oh, building. Wow. Yeah, so those kind of stories, like they're so intense and sad and moving. And so I've, I've always been really fascinated by that kind of history. Yeah, I, I'm really fascinated by um, women and women's history because I think, well, I'm really, I'm fascinated by prostitution as well. Um, uh, uh, I'm actually, I'm writing another book and I'm, really? I'm writing, I'm, yeah, I'm writing about that history. This is so perfect. It really is something that I like love to learn about. Uh, I, yeah, me too. I just, I um, like there's this kind of romanticism about madams and, yeah. you know, um, but then I don't know. I'm, there's so much there. This is my whole binder. This is my binder for the book that I'm working on. Wow. This is Nellie Curtis on the cover, the really? woman I was talking about from the LaSalle Hotel. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're writing another book. Is it based on Seattle history? Too? Yeah, it's built, It's based on 1975, the year, which is kind of weird. But it's the year that we almost legalized prostitution in Seattle. Wow. And um, the book is based on the two opposing um, arguments for and against. And those take you back into history and into present day. So it's kind of like this convergence of things that happened and how it got there and where it is now. So it's going to be fun. I, I have 57 pages written. That's all I, I have. 
I hired, I'm hiring someone to help me like create timelines on that. Cause I don't know, I am having a hard time yeah. finishing. So, so I'm working with someone who's, I have to submit things to. That's really interesting to think about, you know, we have the stories of history, but to really reflect on what if things had just been different? What if it had been legalized? Yeah. How different would our world be? Um, totally different, completely different. In so many positive ways. <laughs> well, that's crazy. I'm so glad that you're you're writing about it and that people will know. People should know. You know, I think that's what they say in the Butte Museum. Their little tagline is like, "This this matters. The story counts." Something like that. Oh yeah. It does. Like it. Like that's the thing that really gets me is to think that people would forget those moments. I do, yeah. I don't like that at all. I want people to know and to look at it and to remember what they lived through. You know. I also think that uh, there's a big transition socially that happens in our country in the 70s. Um, it's a really interesting time. I mean, we have like adult films going into theaters and Seattle is responsible for that, for bringing pornography to theaters. Um, and we have uh, serial killers like Gary Ridgway in the 80s where he you know, targeted sex workers. Um, and I feel like there is a romanticism about women in the past where we know their name and there's this kind of yeah. beauty to some of them, not all of them, but some of them. And then we have a time frame in which sex is becomes a commodity and women's identities, uh, they become disposable. Um, and that's, I think, and what has happened and why sex work in a way I don't know. The internet also changes some of that, but um, yeah. there, to me, there should still be romance and there should be creativity and love around people working in that industry, period. Wow, that's a really interesting point to make. I mean, it humanizes them, like it dignifies them because that's, even if, I don't know, you don't have all the options you wanted, you're still going to have all the same needs and desires and hopes. Yeah. It's an interesting subject. It really is. And it's also interesting how in the 70s it parallels gay and lesbian rights and it, um, women's rights in the workforce, um, parental rights for women, like all of these political things are happening at the same time that this discussion over pornography and prostitution is happening. So uh, it's a fascinating decade for that that subject, which is why I'm writing about it. Well, thank you for preserving it and for telling the story. And thank you for telling me about it. I'm really happy to know. Um, thank you so much for talking. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously, thank you so much. Um, this was really great. I mean, I can let you go, but thank you for sharing all of that today. Thank you, Laura. It was really wonderful to talk to you. It made my day. It made my day too. I'm going to have to come. It's Queen Anne Roasters, right? Yeah. Um, please, it would be great to meet you in person. Definitely. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely like staying more COVID safe lately, but I will be down in that shop and I can email you or send you a note when I'm there and what days. And it would be what, great to meet you in person. I would love that. Let's plan on it. Okay. Six feet apart. A lot of yeah. Six feet apart. Mask. Okay. Right. Have an awesome day. Thank you. Bye.